Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to his followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as he marks out the way of discipleship for us. So good morning. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Glenn Ahrens, and uh, my wife and I are members here. And two weeks ago, we had the joy of actually celebrating our 35th wedding anniversary. So thank you. Uh, it is absolutely a testimony to God's goodness and to her patience. It absolutely is. Uh, and I am grateful that I get to be here again to proclaim God's word. And we've been covering the section in scripture that is referred to as the farewell discourse. Every time that I have read this section of scripture, I've wondered what the disciples must have thought. I've tried to put myself in a spot to see a perspective of one of their lives. In trying to understand the text, I've also tried to understand the setting. I'm going to attempt that for you now. I was just an ordinary man. I had a family, a profession, but there wasn't anything extraordinary about my life. I'm a Jew, committed for sure, but not a Pharisee by any means. I observed all the feasts. I prayed. I tried to live as God would want me to. I loved God, but I wasn't prepared for what was about to take place. Since I was born, we've been making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover, and here we were again. Yet this one was very different. I'll come back to that in a minute. When I was a child, we were taught the significance of this day, and for the next seven days when we ate unleavened bread, I remember as a child during Passover, I'd ask the questions at the table, and my father would explain the significance of the meal and each of the items and what they represented. Things have been different the last couple of years since Philip came to me while I was sitting under that fig tree. Philip came all excited, and you could tell he had what he thought was great news. He said they found the Messiah. Now, we had had hopes of the coming Messiah, but there were others before that claimed to be him, and when they were gone, everybody just went back to what they were doing before. I had had my hopes up before, and I wasn't going to get them up again just on what Philip said, especially since he said this man was from Nazareth. And I just couldn't think of anything good that could come from such a small backwoods town. So I didn't believe what he was saying. He didn't try to defend it, though. He just told me to come and see. So out of respect for Philip, I did. When I first met Jesus, he said something very strange as he saw me approach. He said, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Well, that threw me off. I wasn't quite sure how to respond, so I asked him, do you know me? And he told me that he saw me sitting under the tree before Philip found me. How could he know that? How could he have seen me and known me like that? Something is different with this man. What Philip said about him must be true. And I believe then that he is the Son of God, the King of Israel, and the coming Messiah. Man, what a journey it's been since then. The things that we have seen, blind men see again, the lame walk, his authority over the wind and the sea. I could go on and on about what we saw. He gave us authority once to heal and send us out in twos. Even the demons submitted to us in his name. And then on the way here, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He was dead four days, and Jesus called him right out of that tomb. Yet at times during the last couple of years, I still doubted. 
Sometimes he had to explain what he meant by his parables. It wasn't always readily apparent to us, but he would talk to us and explain what it meant. He really loved us. I'd been loved before, but never like this. He has a way about him. Even when he corrects you, he speaks the truth in such a way that you know that it is his love and why he's correcting you. But I wanted to tell you about this Passover and what it followed. We've celebrated a couple Passovers with Jesus, and yet this year it's been really different. You see, we were in Jerusalem not too long ago, and it didn't go so well. They wanted to stone him. You have to understand the chief priests and the scribes really have it out for Jesus. They are threatened in every way, and they just refuse to believe that he's the Messiah. They've seen some of the things that we've had. They've seen the healings, the demons cast out, the changed lives. They just come up with excuses to not believe. I have seen a couple of the Pharisees trust in him, but you know, it is really hard to live a faith-based life in a fear-based world. And they live in fear. Fear of losing their place. Fear of being seen as something different than what they portray. Fear of what others may think and fear of trusting anything other than their own power. Yet Jesus was set at stone, set a stone that we must come back here. We tried to convince him otherwise, but he wouldn't listen. Finally, as the 12 of us were talking together, Thomas said that we should go and die with him if we must. When we got here, though, the people lined the streets for him. He rode on this donkey, in on this donkey colt. That thing had never been ridden before, but you couldn't tell that. It was so gentle in the way it carried Jesus down that path. It was like that colt knew who he was carrying. The people started throwing down their coats for him, and others took branches and lined the path into the city. This was truly a king's welcome. We didn't fully understand what was happening, but it was exciting to be a part of. So many emotions I felt that day. It was hard to process them all. Everything he had ever said was going through my mind. How did I end up here? A close friend of the king. This was too good to be true. Jesus somehow had arranged a room for us to have the Passover meal. He sent two out from us to prepare the meal. He seemed so serious on this trip. There was something that was up, but we couldn't figure it out. Looking back now, though, I know. He knew his time had come. He tried to tell us this, but we couldn't hear it for some reason. It didn't fit the story as we thought it should, but he knew, and he loved us right till the end. When the meal was being served, as we were all reclining around the table, some of us wondered where the servant was to wash our feet. It was custom that there would be somebody there to do that, and we had done that duty before at times, but with the entry that just took place and all that we were excited about, none of us felt that we should have to do that now. Certainly friends of the king don't wash feet. Moments ago, we were talking together about what roles we'd have in his kingdom. We really weren't about to wash feet. But then he stood up. He was very calm and purposeful and took out his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. What in the world is he doing? We were glancing at each other with those uncomfortable looks you give each other when you don't quite understand why somebody is doing something. We were trying to figure this out. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash our feet. I didn't know what to say. Peter, when he came to him, said, No, Lord, you should never wash my feet. And Jesus told him that if he didn't wash his feet, he could have no part of him. 
then the rest of us remain quiet after that. But now I truly didn't know what was happening and why he would do that. God, in my mind, doesn't wash feet. And when he was done, he calmly got dressed and sat back at the table. And finally, after seeing what seemed like an eternity, he spoke again. He asked us if we understood what he just did for us. How could we understand a king that just reduced himself to a servant? None of this was making sense. And then he spoke again. He told us that we call him teacher and Lord, and that is correct, for he is those. He told us that if he was willing enough to uh, love us to wash our feet, that we should be willing to love others enough to wash theirs. He was setting an example for us to do just what he did. Man, I felt ashamed. Moments earlier, I was thinking that I couldn't lower myself to wash their feet, and then he did it. I was thinking of what my position should be, and him, knowing his position, stooped down and became our servant. How could I be so foolish and blind? It wasn't just about washing feet, though, we learned later. He was showing us the cross. He was about to give the ultimate sacrifice for us, truly the full extent of his love, and we didn't even see it. But how could we? Then I remembered his words while we were still up near Capernaum, and he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? But now he was telling us he had to leave. And not leave as in just leave the room, but leave as in going away permanently. Going to the Father, he said, why does he have to leave? And where is he going? That wasn't the plan. That is not the script. He is to stay and become king. The Messiah doesn't leave. The Messiah rules. And who is this comforter that he talks about? I just don't understand. He's not supposed to leave. How is that supposed to be better? Please don't leave us. Please don't leave us, Jesus. Have you ever felt that you don't know the way? You don't know what step to take next? Maybe wonder what message God is trying to send you through this latest test? Like we just don't get to see around the corner? Much like with CT announcing his leaving, I don't get to see around that corner, although today we were given some insight into that. But I can't control it. I don't know about you, but I can tell you that many times in my journey with Christ, I have not understood. My human reasoning cannot get my head around what God is doing at times. I have felt lost more than once. I normally find it's when I'm trying to rely on my reasoning and my abilities and my thoughts and my ability to control things. That's when I feel that way. Jesus tells us, though, that we were never meant to do this alone. We're in the middle of a series now that's called The Follower's Trail Guide, studying Jesus' final instructions to his disciples before his death and his resurrection. And it comes from the Gospel of John. He is preparing them for the way of discipleship once he dies, resurrects, and ascends. But he's also preparing us in the way of discipleship. So if you would, please turn with me to John chapter 16, and we'll start in the second half of verse 4 and continue through verse 15. But first, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come to you today admitting that we need you. 
that of our own reasoning, of our own accord, of our own thoughts, of our own ways, we fail. But Father, you've promised us your spirit that we've sang about this morning. You've promised it as an ever-present help. So Father, we ask of a quickening of your spirit within us this morning. Fill this room with your spirit, Father, we pray. Fill each of us with your spirit in a new way that we might hear what you would have for us and that we might be able to carry that out to a lost and dying world. And Father, we'll give you the glory and the honor and the praise for that forever. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In John chapter 16, starting in verse, the second half of verse 4, the word of God says this, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I know many years ago I happened to be in a conversation with someone where I was told that I couldn't understand what they had gone through. And I agreed that I hadn't gone through that exact same situation. Yet the feelings they had, I could understand. I had felt them many times before. The confusion, the anger, the sadness, the frustration, those I knew. And those were what I was trying to get to. He later asked me if I thought God has a purpose for this. And while I didn't quote the scripture, it reminded me of Romans 8.28, where it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I told him that God always has a plan and a purpose for everything we go through, whether we understand it or not. As long as we give it to him, it will work together for good. I always like to have a plan, though, a way through. I like to think that I've been able to channel everything into something useful. I have also found that in more than a few instances, what I thought was a good way forward wasn't such a good way at all. That's why I said 35 years of marriage is a testimony to his goodness and her patience because my plans have not always worked out. The disciples thought they had a good way forward. The Messiah comes, the Messiah rules. He was to redeem his people, his nation, and to bring peace to the land. That oversimplifies it a little bit, but you get the point. They had a plan. They had a way forward, and that plan and way forward was contingent on Jesus sticking around. Him leaving wasn't a part of that plan. Maybe you can understand their dilemma. He's been telling them now that they will face all kinds of troubles in this world. Now they had seen trouble, unruly crowds, Pharisees out to trick them, the winds and the water out of control and others, but Jesus was always there. The world's hatred 
was directed mainly against him, and Jesus made a way. Their fear was always misplaced when Jesus was there, but now he says he's going. His departure meant that hatred was going to come down on them, his representatives. They're going to run head-on into trouble with no Jesus to be there. Also, they're now going to be proclaiming a resurrected uh, Messiah without him there. Yet he said it's better for them that he goes away. See verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I can't think of much within the Christian community that creates more differing ideas than that of the Holy Spirit. You may have come from a tradition that rarely, if ever, even speaks of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you came from a tradition uh, that much was made of the Holy Spirit and attached certain signs or gifts to him and emphasized those. Maybe you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the Holy Spirit at all, yet heard many different things about the Spirit. One pastor put it this way, Over my tenure as a pastor, I found that many people have questions. Is the Spirit in the wind? Is it a force or maybe like a force? Is the Holy Spirit an it or is the Holy Spirit a he? Even beyond what the Holy Spirit is or the better question of who the Holy Spirit is, what does the Holy Spirit do? What's the role of the Holy Spirit in the world and in our lives? Thankfully, Jesus addresses this to his disciples and in turn to us. It may not answer all of your questions as to the person of the Holy Spirit, but hopefully it'll answer some key ones. And that brings us to our first point, which begins to answer the question of why the Spirit was sent. The Spirit was sent to help believers. That's you and me. My goal has always been in this faith not to limit God, Jesus, or the Spirit. Now, I'm pretty sure that the disciples were trying to figure out at this point how it could be better for Jesus to be gone. Some of that is a great affection for our present life, putting a bit too much stock into what is here versus what is to come. I do that far too often. Another part of that is how can it be better to have something I don't understand versus a person in front of me that I do understand? Yet Christ's bodily presence could only be in one place at one time, but the Spirit is everywhere in all places at all times. So Jesus is grounding the idea that it's better for him to go away because that means he will send the helper. Other translations put the word for the Spirit here as comforter, counselor, and advocate. I like all the translations because in that Jesus is telling us he's sending the Spirit to help, to comfort, to counsel, and to advocate. And this helper is always with us. Wherever I go, the person of the Spirit goes with me. I am never Without him, when I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, he sealed me with the promise of the Spirit. And that's Ephesians 1.13. So how does the Spirit help believers? The best way I know how to answer that is to see what God says. Jesus makes references throughout these texts in John to various actions the Spirit does. The Spirit teaches all things, John 14.26. The Spirit brings remembrance to all that he said. That's also in 14.26. The Spirit bears witness, that's Acts, or John 15.26 and Acts 1.8. The Spirit abounds in hope, that's Romans 15.13. The Spirit gives us words to speak, that's Acts 4.31 and Mark 13.11. The Spirit gives us the ability to walk in his statutes and obey, and that's Ezekiel 36, 27. Jesus is helping us to see that the 
Spirit is his representative, here to bring aid and assistance to his followers. You are not alone. He helps us understand how the Spirit spotlights the Son and the unique way that the Spirit continues Jesus' ministry in relation to the world and the church. And he does that through us, guided by his Spirit. Now, if I was God, I wouldn't have chose me. I'm pretty much a knucklehead. If I knew you personalized, I probably wouldn't have chose you. I don't know. I know I wouldn't have chose half the people in his, in, in his word. But that's why he gives us his spirit. Of our own accord, we never make the grade. Yet he uses us amazingly. And the next point helps show that. In the next several verses, we see that the Spirit was sent to convict the world. Look at me, look with me at John 16, 8 through 11. Verse 8, the Word of God says this, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The idea of convict here is the idea of to show someone his sin and summon them to repentance. I love what Matthew Henry here says in his commentary on these verses. Matthew Henry writes, Convincing work is the Spirit's work. He can do it effectually, and none but he. It is the method the Holy Spirit takes, first to convince, and then to comfort. He goes on to say, The Spirit shall convince the world of sin, not merely tell them of it. The Spirit convinces the fact of sin, the fault of sin, the folly of sin, and the filth of sin, that by it we have become hateful to God. The Holy Spirit proves that all the world is guilty before God. Again, verse 8 says, When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Matthew Henry goes on to say, The Spirit convinces the world of righteousness that Jesus of Nazareth was Christ the righteous. Also of Christ's righteousness imparted to us for justification and salvation. The Spirit will show them where it is to be had and how they may be accepted as righteous in God's sight. Is that what the Spirit did for you? Through his Spirit, he showed you that you were guilty and also how you could be accepted. Does he not now show the world through your life what he did? Your life has now become a testimony, not only of the convicting power of the Spirit, but the saving power of Jesus. I can't word this better than Matthew Henry did, so I'm going to continue just for a moment. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. He writes, Christ's ascension proves the ransom was accepted. Amen. Otherwise, he had to die his own death. Christ's ascension proves the ransom was accepted and the righteousness finished through which believers, read that you and I, were to be justified. See, what we have is an imputed righteousness, not of our own, but Christ's own righteousness placed on us and confirmed by the Spirit in us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Man, I hope you don't miss that point. The Spirit convicts, but then the Spirit comforts. But now the third part Christ mentions in verse 11 concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged as Satan is subdued by Christ, this gives us confidence. For no other power, and I mean no other, no other power can stand before Christ. And this is the last part I'll read of Matthew Henry, but he writes, the Holy Spirit is our guide not only to show us the way, but to go with us. To be led into a truth is more than barely to know it. It is not only to have a notion of it in our heads, but the relish and savor and power of it in our hearts. He shall teach all truth and keep back nothing profitable, for he will show things to come. All the gifts and graces of the Spirit, all the preaching and all the writing of the apostles, under the influence of the Spirit, all the tongues and miracles, were to glorify Christ, to make much of Jesus. So how should this make us respond? Remember my first question, have you ever felt you don't know the way? Not sure what's around the corner? Remember the words the translators use for spirit? Helper, comforter, counselor, advocate? The first thing it should cause us to do is look inward. Has the spirit convicted me of my sin, the folly of my sin and my false righteousness? Has the spirit led me to turn from my false beliefs and my faith in myself and place my faith in Christ? Have you been convicted? And then comforted. If not, then I hope today is the day for you. That the Spirit does His work in your life and you can receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's a simple ask that has eternal rewards and God is faithful. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge His righteousness and Jesus came and lived a sinless life. Died a sacrificial death for you and rose again on the third day and now sits at the right hand of God providing intercession for you. Receive Him as your Savior. And if you have come under that conviction and have put your trust in Christ, our response should be a turning outward. Our lives become a testimony for Christ. This can and should empower us to share the good news, as in short-term missions that they talked about earlier today. Jesus promised that the Spirit is doing this work and we can follow the Spirit's head or lead in proclaiming Christ. Just remember in that we don't do the convicting nor the convincing. That's the Spirit's job. We just have to be faithful to share. We get to plant seeds. We get to water. It's God that causes the growth. Since we know that the Spirit was sent to help believers and convict the world of sin, we now move to another point that Christ made, which is that the Spirit was sent to glorify Christ. Look uh, Look with me at verses 12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. One of the most impactful ways we see this is in his word revealed. 
2 Timothy 3.16 states, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And in 2 Peter 1.20 and 21, the word of God says this, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word glorifies Christ and glorifies the Father. Another way we see the Spirit's power to glorify Christ is in our witness. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The New Testament is really clear that the purpose of the church is the same purpose for which we were made, to glorify God and to take the gospel into all of the world. And that's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. These are the chief ends of mankind and the church, and we can glorify God by living our lives as Christ did, guided by the Spirit, by loving our enemies, by sharing the good news with the lost, by loving one another, and by our good works which will glorify God. The Holy Spirit is present to guide the church into glorifying Christ. The Spirit creatively guides God's people through God's word, his voice, and wisdom and gifts. And that's Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12. All to highlight the glory of the Son, to make much of Jesus. The Spirit is equally important in the Godhead, but his role is to highlight Christ. To help clarify that some, this comes from the Athanasian Creed, which was written somewhere around the 4th century. But I've not found anything that states this better. It states, For we worship God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another. And that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal and their majesty co-eternal. So therefore, while we see the Spirit at times, more often than not, he's simply at work in the life of God's people in countless and often subtle ways to make the most of Jesus and spotlight the Son. Again, have you ever felt that you don't know the way? Don't know what's around the corner. Do you want to know what you should do? Trust God that you're not alone. His spirit inside you to guide you, to comfort you, to counsel you, and to stand for you. And he's brought us together in the church that we might continue through our gifts to edify and build one another up, to help each other, to comfort each other, to console each other through the spirit that resides within us. You're here for a purpose. Christ is telling his disciples, which if you receive Christ, you are one now. So he's telling us the Spirit was sent and is still in the world helping believers, convicting and convincing the lost, glorifying Christ, and guiding his church. I pray that the Spirit continues to guide you all into all truth, glorifying Christ, and always, always, always making the most of Jesus. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.